What kind of road trip would you be willing to go on with three death gods? Would you sign up for near certain trouble in a world where the reaches of Christianity were different than the one you know, but just as destructive and painful? Sign up to kill gods and run from the people hunting you with Desperado right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Three death gods from Aztec, Japanese, and Haitian faiths run into each other, in some cases quite literally, on a ship going to Europe as they flee the cursed... Cur- Christian, fuck. On a ship. Nope, I'm just going to take one of the top. Sorry. Three death gods from Aztec, Japanese, and Haitian faiths run into each other, in some cases quite literally, on a ship going to Europe as they flee the Christian persecution rampant in their homelands and try to salvage their culture and heritage from erasure and genocide. Desperado follows the journey of three entwined souls, possessed by the powers of death spirits and gods from their homelands, Elio, Shinji, and Talia. It taps into the stories of faiths that have been touched irrevocably by Christian colonization. The goddess La Catrina, born from the Aztec goddess of the underworld, Mictecasihuatl, who ruled over it with her husband, Mictlantecli, traditions of honoring the dead, changed by the influence of Catholicism. The Shinigami, a kind of death spirit or grim reaper popularized by post-war Western influence and found mentioned in Buddhism, Shinto, and more folk religions. The Loa, Baron Samdi of Haitian Bodu, a diasporic religion that arose from Roman Catholicism and Yoruba and Fon faiths. Desperado's style is fascinating. Like Vega, it feels like friends telling someone the story about their adventures, except on tape, instead of more casually, like something fleeting. There's a sense of being recorded for posterity, for whatever reason, and that these events are all crucial to understanding what is coming. So now, we bring you the first three episodes of Desperado, which each introduce you to the three protagonists, starting with something older than Mexico. Okay, I'm in front of the mic. Yeah, can you hear me? Great, all clear. Are we are we doing the tragic backstory thing still? Yeah. No, I'm still up for it, but um, I'm not doing it sober. Cause I don't fucking want to. If if I have to bring all those memories back up, I I just don't want to feel it. Okay. So what is that? Vodka? Yeah, yeah. Screw it. Do you have a shot glass? It's just nicer that way. No. What kind of recording studio is this? <laughs> Thank you.
Uh. <laughs> mm. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Elio, Elio Lores. I was born in a small village named Azcatla in Mexico 23 years ago. And, well, there are three things you need to know about Azcatla. First, that its founders meant to name it after the Nahuatl word for grassland, but since the church had burned every record of that language and crucified those who remembered it, my ancestors had to throw together a bunch of syllables from memory, and I found out actually that they came very close in their attempt. Yeah. Second, Azcatla was small, and I'm talking less than 100 people, but I don't think it would have stayed that way, because people were just churning out babies all the time. You had nothing else to do. You just made more people and you'd hope one of them would make something cool eventually. It was so small that it remained one of the last place on earth where people still honored one of the old faith. We would shroud ourselves in the darkness of our cellars and pray in whispers to a dark haired woman in a crimson dress. It was very dramatic. <laughs> Among the gods of men, she was one of the youngest. She was a bastard of the Aztec and Christian pantheon, born during colonization. She wore a crown of roses and had braids of thorns. She had the softest smile, but had her face behind a mask. A cracked skull she would paint in bright colors. But like most of the gods of today, she had disappeared many years ago when the old man in the sky had sent his followers on yet another crusade. And now the third and last thing you need to know about Azcatla, and I'm sure y'all saw it coming, is that it burned to the ground. For he the Lord is everywhere and sees everything, and he never liked false idols. And so that night, as the village burned, only two survivors escaped. Me, and dragging me away from the village, my father. Because I just stood there staring at the streets the bodies littering the grounds farmers merchants men women and children all of them dead friends family and looming over the carnage i saw four crusaders in the middle of the plaza watching a wooden stake as it burned they were titans armed from head to toe rifle in hands and swords on their back their Kevlar vest emblazed with a white cross. Behind them, I heard someone ask about runaways, and the four of them turned at once, facing the Inquisitor that led them. The man was tall and joyful. He strolled around like on a midnight walk, and they told him, yes sir, two runaways going east. He smiled and he said, but not for long. And they returned his smile, they said, no, sir, not for long. Amused, you know, it was, it was like Saturday night with the boys, I guess, for them. It was fun. Exciting, thrilling, I don't know. Less than a mile away, we were just running for our life, trying to survive. My father was, I was trying to, to get out of his grasp, to, to, to go back, to try to do something. And I kept saying, I kept begging him, you have to let me go, you have to let me go, mom is still there, and he... The first time he turned around and he grabbed me by the collar and he says, she's dead. You see that fire, you see what they were building, she's dead. 
And I protest. It doesn't make sense to me. I said she wasn't a witch. Why would they? And they start shooting. So I crouch down. My father grabs me again. He says, hurry. Far behind us, one of the soldiers line up his visors and shoots. The bullet pierces my father's flank and he falls to the ground, breathless. I crouch to his side and I try to get him up to help him. He says, no, you gotta run. And I, I, again, I keep trying to help, saying, no, you gotta get up. Come on, we gotta go, we gotta go. And he just says, run. Now. And I hesitate. I hesitate because I'm terrified and I know that he's not going to go far. And I don't see any tears in his eyes. Just rage. And he says, Goddess protects you. Elio. And then he shot in the head. <laughs> can we, can we, can we take a break? Just, yeah, just for a moment. That'd be great. Yeah, do you have a lighter? Cool. Yeah, I'll be right back. Just five minutes. <sighs> okay, um, where was I? Right, so... I jump back, finally get back to my senses as well, and I start running. I run for miles and miles, and I know behind me that they're taking their time, you know, they know they find me, so, you know, sharing jokes, they want to make it last. It's the last kill of the night, I'm sure it means something. And so I keep on praying with every step forward, with every breath I can still waste, I say, God has give me strength. Let me take one more step. I will fight for you. I will offer them all to you. But please, goddess, give me strength. I fall to the ground once, and I get up. Twice, and I get up. And you wouldn't believe the amount of stuff on the ground in a random field in Mexico. Bullets are grazing my skin. My arms and legs are bleeding. My face is covered in ashes. But still, I run. Till I stumble again on something older than Mexico. A stone break the entrance of a forgotten ruins, and I look up and a brazero ignites in front of me, piercing the light. And then another follow, and another, and then dozens more, and with their lights I can see a whole city emerging from the darkness. And that's, that's where it gets fun. That city wasn't even a tenth of what it used to be, but some buildings still stood, and at the end of a paved route I could see the path to a pyramid. And I knew something answered my call. I saw a red figure on the road, not too far away, a dark-haired woman in a crimson dress, draped in the mist. She was right in front of me, and then suddenly she was gone, only to reappear further away. She wanted me to follow to the pyramid. And I start running again. I go deeper into the ruins, and a few minutes after, I can hear the soldiers enter. And they don't know what his place is. They ask, where are we? And do you see him? And where has he gone? Suddenly one of them spot me. I'm painfully climbing the steps of the pyramid, barely halfway. And they start shooting. They try to hit me, but I'm way out of range. And the night is too dark, so they have to go deeper into the ruins. And as they do, whispers start to rise. They say... Make it an honorable kill. In the beginning, they don't quite hear them. 
They keep shooting. One of them actually hit me in the shoulder and I fell against the steps. I heard them cheer behind me, high on adrenaline. And they still didn't pay attention to the voices. To the single idea I was slithering inside their mind. Most importantly, they didn't realize it was a woman's voice whispering in their ears. So when another soldier tries to shoot, the Inquisitor puts a hand on his shoulder to stop him. The man takes out his sword and starts climbing the steps. Meanwhile, the Inquisitor's gonna have to walk all the way to the top because I made it. And it's not it's not glorious. I, I'm half dead, I'm panting like a dog, bleeding away on sacred ground, and I stumble away from the steps. I recover on the edge of a weird altar, like a table carved in dark stone, and I can feel it yearning for something, almost pulsating. And on the other side of it, I see her, Ekaterina herself, ruler of the dead and protector of my people. And I can see behind her smile, she hides so many worries, like my mom used to. And it's not reassuring, you know, when you see a goddess and she's worried for you, it doesn't feel great. So I tell her, they're coming. They're coming, please, you gotta help me. And ever so gently, she, she takes my face between her hands. And she says, it's gonna be okay, mijo. Breathe. Now take the knife. And I look down and I see a stone dagger on the table, untouched for centuries. She repeats, she says, take the knife. Meanwhile, my head is getting heavier, my mind quieter, the air is too thick, too warm, and yet I'm shivering. I'm losing blood, I'm losing thoughts, I'm, I'm on the edge. And that's when I hear the footsteps. The Inquisitor made it to the top and he asked, Finished running? I look up at her, but she's watching past me, wrath in her eyes. And it was like nothing I've ever seen before. It wasn't a fiery rage, it was dark and composed. It was slowly thrust a dagger angry, you know? And she tells me, quiet. The man is only a few steps away from me, but I, I don't think he could see her, only me, bleeding away on the table. And then he says, it's a beautiful place to die. And could you imagine if those were the last words you hear? If a psychopath in armor walked toward you and said, hey, enjoy the view, though. And I hear the swords raised in the air. I hear his hands around the handle, and, and I hear his voice whispering last rites already. You know, the Latin stuff, the Paternoster Kineskaelis, all that. He takes one last step, and then she says, now. And it's like she just pulled every ounce of focus within me, my entire soul, right back into my body. And before the Inquisitor can react, I slip under her sword and throw him against the table. The dagger finds a heart, and the priest's blood soak the altar. Nakatrina lifts her arm to the side, embracing the sky, and I look up at her, so insanity in my voice, and I said, this is for you, goddess. And that night I knew I resurrected a god. Crimson mist started to rise from the sacrificed body, swirling around the altar, and the goddess started fading away, fusing with that haze. I took a step back, because it was, it was kind of fucking scary. As the mist suddenly launches at me, raising me in the air, and everything around me felt silent. For the first time, my soul could be still. And I gave control without even thinking about it. It was 
it was like an adult just suddenly took my hands after 23 years of struggle and said, I got it. Just rest for a bit. That's what they don't tell you about possession. It's not a struggle. There's no pain. It's somebody saying they'll lend you a hand and your poor, desperate soul, your anxious and overwhelmed mind is just begging you to let them. And only then do you realize how tired you are inside. I didn't think twice. And she knew her way around the body much better than I ever will. I had, I've had one for 23 years. She had hundreds across centuries. She knew exactly what she was doing. Meanwhile, the rest of the soldiers only now reached the top of the pyramid and they stopped dead in their tracks. They saw the mist of symbols on my skin. It was calaveras and thorny roses, weaved together with Aztec symbols. And that, that was painful. That was her carving herself a place within me, infusing me with power, and I thought, I thought that was it. That I had accomplished some sort of divine purpose, and now that fire spreading within me would consume me. I thought I was gone. I slowly started my descent, my eyes closed, but a new grace to my movements, a lightness. And still, in my mind, this perfect stillness, like, like being in the back seat and just watching someone drive and knowing that everything's gonna be alright. My body slowly turned around, like moved by the breeze. I opened my eyes as we faced the soldiers. And obviously they started shooting, but not once did I feel worried. I knew, I knew something would protect me. And in an instant, a spear deployed itself around me, almost invisible if it weren't for the veins that ran through it, pulsating an echo with my own heartbeat. And I looked at its swirls on the surface, its, its texture, and I realized there was blood, the priest's blood surrounding me, protecting me. And with each bullet impact, a small burst of it surged in the air, spreading the iron scent into the night. But soon enough, the bullet rain stopped. The guns clicked empty. And I took a single step forward. I didn't even have to think, it was instinct. You don't think about breathing. You don't think about this either. The shield suddenly spent throwing the rest of the soldiers down the pyramid, hundreds of feet down. And they were dead on impacts. Silence came crashing down the ruins, and I looked down at my own arms, the new symbols marking my skin, and I heard her voice in my head say, You're the last of our kind, and if we are to survive, we must find allies. And it felt logical, I had no doubt. I just asked, where should I go? She said west, to Europe, where the church has been driven off centuries ago. I asked by who, because who could face the church? She spoke about the witches of the old world and their power. How they predate the old men in the sky by millennia, and when he tried to witch war against them, they crushed his soldiers. And to this day, they guard the old continent, making sure no faith ever takes hold in their kingdom. And that's when I said, well, it doesn't seem like a good plan, because I'm pretty sure you're a goddess. She said, it wasn't ideal, but at least we'd be able to hide and find others. I ask others. My eyes swept across the peninsula, and 
I took it all in. The summer breeze washing over me, gently playing with my hair. The smell. And for years to come, this would be how sadness would wrap around me, and for that I'm grateful. I'm grateful this is what I took with me, and not the fire, not the screams. Just the last whispers of winds through a sea of grass, like a summer night with an iron smell. Then I ask, how will I cross the sea? She said, like every man before you. Me being pragmatic, I asked, you mean by boat? She said, no, it's a path. That many gods still remained in this world, and that their servants resembled me. Over centuries they had paved their own roads to navigate the world, hidden away from the church. And those paths still exist, for those who know how to ask. It's people. And they'll find you. They follow the church inquisition in search of survivors, always. We are bound together, but she cannot reach me from outside our lands. Her blessing still follows, but they'll never be as strong as within our cities. I asked why not, and she said, because you're the only one left. That dozens had prayed for her that night, with their very last breath, they gave her everything. And now my faith was all that kept her anchored to this word, but for her to grow in power, she would need followers. And that's why I crossed the sea. That's how I met the rest of you guys. Next, we'll meet Shinji. First, though, let me talk about our special interview series with Tandon Productions about their podcast, Life on Pause. It's an anthology created during quarantine and Radio Drama Revival gets to interview the writers and some of the actors over on Instagram. You can join us most Fridays and Sundays until January 24th at 3pm Pacific or 6pm Eastern. There's a slight schedule change this week in deference to the holiday season. We'll be live on December 27th at 1pm Pacific with Mia Kodama and again at 2.30pm with voice actor Eva Kantor. We hope to see you there. And now, onward to Muhomono. Hey, good morning. Morning. Take a seat. Thanks. Uh, how are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. Yeah? Yeah, I had a good sleep. I'm with a friend. I got my juice right there. If this is a nice, I don't know what is. Well, uh, should we get into it then? Let's, yeah. State your name and origin for the record, please. Uh, my name is Shinji. I come from a small town in Japan, nested against one of its many mountains. And it doesn't have a name? Not if I say it doesn't. Alright. Then why did you move to London, Shinji? To survive. Right, change of tone. Sorry, didn't realize this was still running. Carry on. I ran from home when I was a, a couple years ago. I was 19 at the time. And when it happened, I was... Just in my room, waiting for... Uh, you want to describe your room a little? It's it's radio. I was going to. Mm-hmm. Didn't sound like it. If you're going to be like this the entire time, I'm walking out. Okay, sure. I can do your part. You do not have the range. No, but I'll just do a very thick Japanese accent. People will know it's you. It's fine. My room was clean. Thank you. There was no trace of teenage mess. No uh, clothes on the floor. 
badly stacked books. I, I mean, what was on my shelves was alphabetized, and my drawers were kept locked. It was a room with a secret. And that night, I laid awake in bed, because a minute ago I heard my father's guest saying goodbye. And any moment now, he would come upstairs and he would ask me a question I, I didn't want to answer. I watched the breeze nudge open the shutters to my room, inviting the moonlight inside. And I, I knew I should have run already, fly away before I got caught, but I don't know, I, I wanted to stay in, in that moment. Just a, a little longer. There was still a chance, a small, beautiful chance that I wouldn't have to leave, to, to be alone. <laughs> Never turns out that way though, does it? The light turned on behind the bedroom door. I closed my eyes and my father walked in. He sat down on the side of my bed and I uh, inhaled deeply, uh, pretending to wake up. He wasn't looking at me and there was something different in the way he carried himself. It was his slumped shoulders and his faraway gaze. I asked, Father, is everything okay? And he, has, he said, our neighbors came to visit. I fiend some kind of confusion and I asked, what time is it? He ignored the question and uh, went on saying that the neighbor had told him that his son and I had been spending a lot of time together. And it, it felt like somebody was brushing a cold finger in my stomach, slowly getting to my throat. I asked, did something happen to Kayato? And he said, no, but he's been talking about you. I knew something was wrong from the start, but, but that's when my mind started yelling at me, get the fuck out of there. And I'm not sure what set it off. Maybe it was because of how calm my father was. He was perfectly still. Not, um, not still, but controlled. That was it. He said to me, Kyoto says you can see his mother. His mother who had died three months ago. I brought my knees in a little closer, coiling like a spring. And I said, well, but his mother, why would he say that? And he finally looked at me. And casually, like, like reaching to shake my hand, he put a knife under my throat. Don't lie to me, Shinji, he said. And he knew. <laughs> he knew, he already knew, and he had made his decision maybe a long time ago. As long as nobody else knew, our... Our honor was safe. But now that the neighbors were talking, he had no choice. Still, I tried. I, I asked him, what are you doing? And he, he got angry. Don't lie to me. You think I haven't noticed? You think I didn't know every time you left in the middle of the night? And I tried to protest, saying things like he's lying, he's lying, he's jealous. But his lips curled in disgust. And his grip on the knife tightened. So I hit him. I rolled out of my bed as soon as I saw the expression 
and I knew what it meant. I'm pretty sure I co broke a couple of fingers punching him, but I, uh, I didn't even feel it. He, uh, yelped and let go of me. I, I rushed for the window, I slammed the shutters out of my way and just jumped from two stories high. But before my feet hit the ground, I slowed my descent, floating briefly. Witchcraft, there was uh, no denying it at this point. When I glanced up, I saw him gazing back at me and it felt like, like looking at a stranger. So I started running. I took the path the men of my village only walk at night, through the forest that borders our town. I didn't stop until I reached a clearing, where stood the estranged house of a mountain whore. Her name was Jun. She was thin and almost unremarkable until she started moving. Her steps were soft and delicate. Her posture was perfect, and her smile was, uh... A deadly trap. In a city, she, she would have been a dancer. That night, she was upstairs with a client in a clean, minimalist bedroom. The sex was unexciting, but she kept up a good act. As soon as her client was dressed and out of the house, she dropped her smile, pocketed the money. She took a shower, changed the sheets, and noticed the bracelet on the bedside table. I imagine she frowned and took a closer look as she realized her client must have left it behind. So when she heard a knock on the door, she opened it with a bracelet in hand. You forgot your bracelet. And then she stopped. She looked at me and I was... I was trying my best to hold myself upright, but I, I don't think I fooled her one bit. I was, uh, I was terrified. Evening, Shinji. Hi. Does your father know you're here? No, no, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not here How for- How old are you? Jen, I need help. I saw her face change. Her eyes locked onto mine and, and something clicked. I don't think I was her first. She ushered me in, scanning the forest behind me, and as she closed the door, I, I saw something, um, weird. A fox on the edge of the forest staring right back at her. Once inside, she draped a kimono around her shoulders, then poured a cup of tea. Her living room was halfway there to becoming an antique shop. Her walls collected ancient scrolls, and her bookshelves could hardly support the weight of her books. Sit down. No, no, I, I, we don't have time for Sit that. Sit down. You don't discuss with that tone. You pull up a chair, and you accept the cup of tea, and that's what I did. Talk. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm putting you in danger, but I had nowhere else to go, and- Who's chasing you? I, I don't know my, if my father told anyone. I don't know how many, I, I just ran. Why would they go after you? I turned quiet. I mean, she, she knew already, of course, she had to. People were always whispering about her, talking about her strange books and the claw marks on her body. And nobody ever dared say anything about what we all knew she was. Because if you were sick, or cursed, you would go to her. You would never talk about what she did to you, but you'd come back in good health. Still, I, I, I kept quiet. She reached over the table and I thought she was going to take my hand, but 
When I looked up, she had a gun pointed at me. I'm not getting burned at the stake for you. Either you let me help you, or I'll sell you out. Show me. I closed my eyes, and I took a deep breath. And that's when the lights in the room began to flicker. Before she could say anything, she saw the glow coming from behind me. My wings extended from my back, forged out of light and glowing a faint pink. Featherless, they took root in between my shoulders and sprouted out to the sides like cherry tree branches. They're beautiful. You think? It is unusual for your kind. You know what I am. I've seen it before. Death spirits have many places to be, and flying helps out quite a lot. My wings vanished, and light returned to the kitchen. Do you have a bag? No, I, I, I wasn't really planning ahead. She smiled at me, and, and there was something about that smile that was so... unsettling? I mean, it was, it was too wide and too, um, hungry. It was the smile of a beast. Jean, what, what are you? You don't need to know. Let me get a pen, and there's an emergency backpack under the couch. Go grab it. Do you know where Toshima is? The island? Yes. Fly there, find the brothel, and ask for Kasumi. Give her the note and ask her to connect you with the path. She'll ask you for something in return. You have to refuse. This isn't how the path works. We help each other. No questions asked. It's, uh, a code? Yes. If you think you're being trailed, tell her you've seen a white fox on the way there. Got it? Kasumi, seven years. Refuse whatever she asks. White fox is something is wrong. Great. Now go. Just... just like that? You want to wait for the pitchforks? My dad has a shotgun, but uh, I, I see what you mean. She didn't find that funny. Handed me the note and, uh, and then she opened the door. Her, uh, her client was stood outside. His hand was raised as if he was about to knock. I, I just froze in place. The guy saw me and he just said, uh, Shinji? You're here for your chain. He said, I think I left it on your table. Just a minute. And she left us at the door. Just like that. And I, I mean, I was trying to think of something to say, but I didn't have to because the guy leaned into me and said, Don't worry. I used to sneak out all the time when I was your age. I won't say a thing. That just kind of went, Ah, yeah. And then he asked me, Hey, have you seen all those foxes on the way here? He, uh, he gestured towards the forest, and I saw at least a dozen foxes just waiting, watching us. And that's when Jun came back. And she was not holding his chain. She shot without hesitation, point blank. Behind us, the foxes flinched, but they, they didn't run. And Jun just started yelling at them. You couldn't warn me, you little shits! Meanwhile, I was just staring at the body and thinking to myself, fuck. Jun looked at me and she said, He would have told the others. Yeah, yeah, I, I get the decision making, but 
She didn't let me finish my sentence. She just threw the gun in my hands and said, And if you want to live, don't hesitate. I'll take care of the body. Now go. I didn't ask any more questions. I, I didn't say anything else at all. I took the gun, I deployed my wings, and I got the fuck away from there. I did look back, though, just once. I think she was smiling at me. She glanced down at the foxes as they started sniffing the corpse of the man at her feet. That's why you stay quiet, isn't it? Well, come on. Go and get your dinner. Get him out of my sight. And you flew all the way to Toshima. Yeah, it's really not that far with wings. Uh, an hour or two at best. The streets were asleep on the island, but as I flew above the port and its houses, I, I didn't see the lone figure that patrolled the neighborhood. A giant figure. Military gear, huge rifle. You know the story. Yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong, Japan doesn't have crusaders. No, uh, officially we don't even have a religious presence in the country. Vemper actually prides himself in saying that there is no witchcraft in Japan. Which, obviously. Yeah, bullshit. But, since 1931, when the old man in the sky started his ascension and wreaked havoc in the US, Vemper made sure nothing of the sort could ever happen in Japan. He created a new department in the military, which became what you call here IWO. Which stands for? Imperial Warding Office. Men and women trained to protect the country against divine threats or, you know, containing and suppressing them. Spirit hunters, essentially. And the man I was talking about, the man patrolling the street, again, massive, was one of them. I didn't know. I, I truly didn't know what I was doing. There was no help book, no, no guideline, nothing... To tell you how to be a fugitive, I... I didn't know. I just flew straight over the city. I bet he didn't even have to look up to know I was there. Kasumi's brothel was the only building a light in the middle of the night, and it was a, a beacon of red by the sea. I landed in the street uh, nearby and, and walked up to the door. A stocky bouncer guarded the entrance under the light of one of the red lanterns, and uh, I stopped in front of him, not really certain what to say, until he asked me, What do you want? I told him I'm looking for Kasumi. He just stared down at me and, the, and then disappeared inside. A few seconds later, the door opened again, and the guard came back out, followed by this tall woman towering over us. She was wearing this uh, beautiful kimono. It, it, it caught every reflection of the red light, and she smiled when she saw me. She reached for my cheek and, and said, You seem a little too young to know my name. Uh, I just handed her the note. She frowned, started reading, then threw it at the bouncer. Get rid of this, and you come in. I followed her inside. The brothel itself was... Um, it was, uh, it was like a labyrinth of, of dark rooms, soft giggles, and, and smoke. It smelled really good in there, uh, like, um, like sandalwood, I think. She walked through a large uh, a salon, 
where a bunch of workers were waiting for the next clients. I think I stared a little too long because the man smiled back at me. Without breaking her stride, Kasumi took a flip phone from under her kimono and dialed a number. Hi, sweetheart. I think I heard mice in the walls again. I need them gone immediately. She hung up the phone, threw it on the ground, and fucking stepped on it. And then just kept walking. Clean it. Now, Kasumi didn't need to raise her voice. If she gave an order, she knew someone would obey. And in that moment, I felt, I felt so compelled that I immediately reached down and started collecting the broken pieces. Not you. Follow me. And that's when a young woman took the broken pieces out of my hands. I, I think I apologized or something. Kasumi led me to a quiet office and closed the door behind me. Compared to the rest of the building, her chamber was surprisingly unwelcoming. The lights were cold, white, and uh, the chairs were rusty. Her desk, a true antiquity, and not in a good way. Neither of us sat down this time, and I guess, I guess it should have been the first sign. Where'd you come from? Uh, it's a small village. Did you fly here? Sorry? We're not doing the old cold bullshit. Did you fly here? Uh, yeah. Fuck. Outside, we heard a car pull up by the brothel. And then the first gunshot. Hey, we... We don't have to. You can skip that part. No, it's... It's important. People need to know what happens when our kind make mistakes. What? What's going on? She took out her necklace, and I realized her pendant was a key. The city is a minefield. We've been smuggling people out of here for months. June hasn't left the village in years. She has no idea how things evolved on the island. We got the desk moving. Kasumi threw out the carpet from underneath, revealing a trap door on the ground. Get in here. She unlocked it, and I jumped down without using the ladder. There's another door underneath. Start running as soon as you're in the tunnels. She tossed me another set of keys. She disappeared, and and then I heard the office door open. You! Get everyone inside. Now! A few workers started to climb down as I jumped into the tunnel. Above me, I, I heard a man's voice yell for Katsumi, and then... And then I heard howl. A noise that a woman in a pretty kimono shouldn't be able to let out. In the tunnels, our group had already started running, but we stopped when we heard the gunshots. And we shared the same terror in our eyes. My wings were the only thing, chasing away the darkness, kiting the rest of us, and seconds later, they were shooting at us. Someone yelled at me to hide my wings, and, and I flew away. I flew away as fast as I could, I left them all to die. You did what you had to. Don't say that. I don't resent my father for dragging me away. He knew there was no point in dying with the rest, trying to be a hero. And now look at me. The bane of crusaders. How many people we freed, how many we saved. I just... just wish I knew what I knew now. Yeah, I get that. What happened next?
I got out. I fell to my knees, ears still ringing. I was broken. Hyperventilating. Tears rolling down my face, but I, I couldn't feel any of it. I couldn't even see the waves crashing down in front of me, or the sand, or the mist, nothing. I barely felt the hand that came shaking my shoulder. Two men, dark clothing, they tried to help me up, dragging me away from the tunnel. They pushed me towards a boat, and as soon as I sat down, they started the engine. The shore started to fade away, but as I looked back, I saw one of the soldiers step out. And you know the scariest part? There's no expression to his face. He was a man doing his job. One of the smugglers suddenly tackled me down to the floor. The giant just started shooting, but thankfully we were already out of range. And after a few seconds, the smugglers seemed to relax. One of them said, it's okay. You are safe now. So I sat back down. I was 19 years old, lost at sea, two broken fingers. <laughs> I asked them where we were going. And the man said, Mexico. Finally, let us introduce you to Talia, an old souls like to bargain. Hey, how you doing? Good? Good. Uh, do you want a drink? No, okay, cool. Um, oh, Shinji said he wouldn't be there today because he's saying goodbye to Asher, but I figured we could still get your introduction done and... Oh, turn your mic on though, yeah. And yeah, feel free to take it from here, really. I'll, I'll shut up and you can start from whenever you want. You know, how did you feel? What was the weather like? I, I don't know. It was raining. A storm was raging at 3 a.m. back home in Haiti. And I know because my grandmother told me. Her name is Lorette, and even then her windows were still alight. But not a single lamp shone inside. Only the flames of her candles as the storm made trees and waves dance to its tempo. She was kneeling in a corner of her living room, praying to an altar, praying to a picture of me. Home was nice. Tapestries, dolls and weird mixtures and jars used to freak me out as a child, but they soon became my own toys. Grandmother's eyes were heavy from sleepless nights, reddened by dry tears. Her knees were grazed and her voice down to painful whispers. She had been doing this for days. But even as the thunder shook the foundations of her house, she kept on praying. Until finally, something answered. The candles were whooshed away at once and she looked up shaking. She heard footsteps and turned around, fear and hope storming in her eyes. Who's there? You tell me, child. A hand hovered above the wick of a candle, 
and a purple flame repelled the darkness. The other wicks quickly followed, revealing a tall black man in an impeccable suit and top hat, an ebony cane in one hand and a cigar in the other. He moved and swayed like under a spotlight, like the earth with his stage and his life of performance. And once, he was God. Who did you call? Baron Samdi. Very few still whisper my name. My grandmother kneeled back down, face to the floor. Thank you, Baron. Thank you. Oh, don't thank me yet. Grandmother closed her eyes, a prayer for mercy in her mind, until she realized how futile it was. The Baron smiled, and she's pretty sure he heard. He walked to the altar and picked up my picture. What do you want? My granddaughter, Baron. She's very sick, and she's all I have left. She bowed down again. I beg you, Baron. I beg you to save her. She's a good child. She's honored your name every day, just like I did. Please, Baron. Stand up, child. And she did. I am no god and no lord. I am a friend. And I haven't walked this earth in a very long time. A lot has changed since the old man in the sky was born. He's a jealous god. Also, I've heard. Most of us are gone. Some never to return. But here I stand. Thanks to you. He lifted my grandmother's chin. Your child will live. And then he let go, dropping my picture to the side. But I ask one thing in return. Anything, Baron. Not from you. Your child will live, but her life will be mine. And when the time comes, she will kill the priests and burn their churches. She will avenge our people or die trying. To that, my grandmother smiled. We've always been fighters, Baron. She will be no exception. Excellent. And the deal was made. The Baron's laugh shattered the silence. Purple glow lit up in his eyes, and in a gust of wind his body became ash, fading away. And in a hospital not too far away, I jerked in my sleep. Above me, the neons in the ceiling flickered for an instant. From white, they turned purple, and from purple, they went dark. When they came back, the Baron was sitting by my side, cigar between his lips. He walked to the other side of the bed and casually smashed the smoke detector with his game and took a deep drag of his cigar. And in my induced coma, I took a deep breath. He exhaled and so did I. My monitor started to shut down one by one as my breathing followed his and the room grew quiet. Welcome back. I sat up dizzy but awake. Last thing I can remember was lunch with grandmother on the garden table, days ago as it turned out. I stared at him for a little too long, not convinced I was awake yet. I said, Baron, where am I? In hospital. Hospital? A couple more days and we would have met on the other side. What happened? Your grandmother has many enemies, some with friends like me. But I'm alive. 
He smiled and there was something so insufferable about his know-it-all, almighty grin. I could have punched him. I am but a shadow of who I used to be. But I wouldn't be myself at all if I couldn't save a single child. What did she offer you? Your service. Which is more than fair if you ask me. I'm not ready, Baron. I, I can't be one of your pawns. I'll be the judge of that. Look at me. I'm weak, nauseous. I, I haven't walked in months. I'm not ready. Samdi threw away his cigar and it disappeared into dust before hitting the ground. I like your fire, but I did not expect your anger. I know what your presence means, Baron. You should be dead, and if you're not, then the priest will soon hunt you down. And hunt me down. No deal is made yet, child. I could still leave you to die. And where would you go? Who on this world still has faith in your name? A few. But none like me. Do you wish to die? No. But I've heard of other messiahs, Baron. Others whose belief was so strong they resurrected an old spirit like you. All of them gave their body and soul for their master's vengeance. And all of them died. You all think you can lead your own crusade against the old man in the sky, but you don't know how men fight anymore. And you do? I've spent my whole life waiting for this moment, Baron. For a chance to avenge my people. I won't let you squander it. He leaned in and I could tell it had gotten his attention. What are your terms, child? You cannot possess me. Not now, not ever. But if you give me your powers, I will get our revenge. <laughs> I will give you a year. A year? A year for what? A year to kill the old man in the sky. But... But, 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 how? He's a god. He has an army. I'm alone. We know, child. If you want to succeed, you have to do what witches do. Find others and plot in the dark. Before I could try to bargain or argue, he snapped a finger and in a blink, the room changed. Heavy curtains suddenly covered the windows and a crystal chandelier was dangling from the ceiling, almost touching the ground. The Baron was sat on a velvet sofa instead of a rusty hospital chair. There were candles and jazz, faint voices and faraway laughter. It was the beginning of a ball. I looked around the room at loss for words while the Baron got up and took my hand. He tried to force me up. I tried to say... No, I, I can't. Yet I stood. For the first time in weeks. Let's do it like the old tales. The Baron spun around and walked backwards towards the corridor. The music outside got louder. Ballroom jazz rising. I followed him out. And as soon as I stepped out of the room, I felt my gown weigh heavy on my shoulders. It tightened at my waist and deployed around my legs into a regal ball dress, colour like red wine. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever worn. The fabric felt like breeze between my fingers, its gold lace softly gleaming under the candlelights. I was no longer in a hospital. The entire corridor was dressed in colonial 19th century fashion. The ground was marble and the curtains velvet. It was all disgustingly expensive. 
and a crowd was gathered against the walls, forming a runway for the Baron and I to walk. They exploded in cheers as he appeared, their hands hidden by gloves and their faces by fans or hats. They were all so extravagant, but also incredibly frail, their skin unnaturally white. And I noticed a glimpse of a face behind one of the fans. It wasn't a face at all. They were all skeletons. But the Baron didn't care. He strolled down the runway, dragging a terrified me behind him, and he boasted. Three gifts for my chosen one. He lifted up two skeletal women from the crowd and dropped them down to the opposite side. You will have my strength. He spun and dipped, hitting every beat of an insane tempo. You will have my flair. And then turned back to me, down on one knee to grab my hand and said, And you will have my people, the dead, are at your service, Lady Talia. The entire court bowed to his words, right before he got up and sent me down the runway. You've got it all, child. Now flaunt it. Flaunt it. I broke into a nervous smile, and the crowd went wild. They all loved me, praised me, venerated me, and it felt good. So good. I tried to spin, a wink, and in a second I was gone. And whoever that girl was, in that moment she drove them all mad. She laughed and whirled, danced and provoked. She was a party of one. A god reborn. The skeleton court was throwing flowers and glitter she made her way through the runway. She slammed the wooden door at the end of the corridor and stepped out in the rain. The music stopped and the ballroom disappeared. Behind her, the hospital doors closed back. A few worried patients were staring while a couple of nurses quickly headed towards her. Her dress was gone as well replaced by her hospital gown. She's back to reality. And she started to run. Less than an hour later, someone knocked on Lorette's door. Lorette turned around, slightly frightened. Who would come in such a weather? Wary, she pulled a strange dagger from her sleeve before opening the door to... Talia, her granddaughter wet like a dog. It was impossible. The hospital was miles away. Nobody could have run that far that fast. But Lorette didn't think any of it. She brought her granddaughter into an embrace. Talia. Her granddaughter broke free, feigning regret. I don't have much time. You met him? Yes. Make the call now. I have to go. Lorette nodded and retreated to the living room. Talia quickly rushed to grab a change of clothes and a backpack. She was ready to go in less than two minutes, stronger with every second that passed. She'd never felt such power, and yet it was so familiar. In the other room she heard her grandmother hanging up the phone. Lorette joined her and embraced her one last time. Where will they take me? I don't know, but don't stop until you've reached Europe. Across the sea. Put an ocean between you and the church and it might be enough. You'll need this. Lorette handed Talia her blade. A large dagger carved from bone. Oh, I can use that. 
and Tally just smiled, a little too wide. And somewhere in there, I saw my grandmother take a step back from me. It's time. Goodbye, little witch. That is it for this week's episode, everybody. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thanks to Tammy and AJ for voicing the characters of Talia and the Baron Samdi. Thanks to Ross Bugden for the use of his soundtrack, New York 1924. And stay tuned for the next episode. In the meantime, I hope you all stay safe. Bye. If you enjoyed what you heard, tune in next week for our final episode of this season where we interview Desperado creator Sammy Suisi. If you liked what you've heard of Desperado, you can support its creation on Patreon at patreon.com slash desperado underscore podcast. Radio Drama Revival runs on copious rewatchings of gay period dramas and your generous donations. If you'd like to help keep us afloat in featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hello. You know, I don't really have a recommendation today. Uh, I just think that Desperado is really, really, really good. Um, and I think that you should listen to the rest of it. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a real year, folks, in case... Uh, just in case you weren't aware until uh, until right now, until this moment that I am t- telling you this right now, it's been a real year. And I am glad to be saying goodbye to it soon. So with that, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you all for joining us uh, for this season of RDR. It's been a really good one. And I am, as always, very grateful to be working on it with this really lovely team. And... I think it is really great that you are listening or reading a transcript or however you are consuming this piece of RDR. Thank you. Um, I care a lot about this show, and I'm glad that you do, too. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klatskani Indian tribe, the Cowlitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe colonizers name this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support Native communities, you can donate to the Navajo and Hopi COVID-19 Relief Fund, linked in our episode description below, or at www.navajohopisolidarity.org. It is organized by Yeha Othnido, a grassroots and indigenous-led nonprofit organization. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Koss. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rishi Karao. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalgh and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Helena Fernandez-Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All 
storytellers. Welcome.